uh, to my uh, church family as you are listening in uh, through our uh, website. I'm actually here in the sanctuary with Barb Roundtree, who is providing uh, the sound. And I want you to know as well that uh, the elders uh, still came, gathered this morning, and continue to lift up uh, their flock in prayer. I want you to know that your elders are faithfully uh, praying for you. Uh, They have much uh, upon their shoulders, and and I have just could not be more impressed and appreciative of the seriousness in which they take the responsibility to be your shepherds and would continue to encourage you to keep praying uh, for them. Now, this day has been um, called to be a day of prayer as well by our president. And certainly, I encourage you not only, I'll be having a pastoral prayer and certainly be lifting up our nation in prayer and would encourage you to do that, of course, not only today, uh, but every day, and particularly as we go through this difficult time as a nation and trying to deal faithfully with the uh, coronavirus. Uh, we are doing our part as a congregation uh, by just having this service online and uh, canceling uh, our other activities. I want to thank the congregation for just for the way that you have accepted all of this, uh, for the concerns that you have been showing for, uh, for your people and uh, for this nation. And uh, I have no doubt, really no doubt, uh, that uh, we will come through this even stronger uh, as a congregation. Now, let me uh, begin our time. I'm going to uh, open this time with a call to worship. And this is from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble, at its swelling. Let's pray. We give you praise, our God, for this psalm written thousands of years ago is as true today as it was written then, that you are our refuge and strength. You are a very present help in trouble all the time. And we thank you and give you praise that as we worship you, even as we are worshiping you in different homes, Uh, this day, uh, that uh, you are present with us wherever we are. Again, as your word has said, there is no place where we can be that you are not already there. And so we pray that you would take the worship we offer to you singly in different homes, that you'd receive it as it all coming together up to you as one congregation united together in the worship of our Lord and pray for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read now the uh, Confession of Faith, which uh, I selected uh, from the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, speaking of Christ as our mediator, as we certainly uh, think about him in that role in this season of thinking of his death for us. Let me read to you this confession of faith. God was pleased to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus 
his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man. This office the Lord Jesus most willingly undertook. He was born under the law and perfectly fulfilled it. He endured most grievous torments in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He remained under the power of death, yet his body did not undergo decay. And he arose from the dead on the third day with the same body in which he had suffered. In this body he ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of his Father, making intercession. And he shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the age. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal Spirit, once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of his Father. He purchased not only reconciliation, but also an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given to him. Amen. Our first scripture reading uh, is from Isaiah chapter 53 that prophesies and speaks of the death of our Lord for us. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's take time now to go to the Lord in prayer. We give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is, who was, the suffering servant, who himself was guilty of no sin, yet he bore our sins, who was deserving of nothing, of certainly nothing of any kind of punishment, yet took the stripes that should have been ours, took the affliction that should have been ours, was pierced when we ought to have been pierced, He took this suffering upon himself because he took our sins upon himself. How wondrous, how wondrous is this story of our redemption. How wonderful it would have been just to know that our Lord had come and and had delivered us from the, the clutches of our enemy. Yet to do it in such a way as to be the substitute for the punishment that was due us. This truly does cause us to tremble, our God, to know that it is our Lord who was stricken, who was smitten by God, who was afflicted for us. And we give you all praise, thanksgiving, and are filled with awe for this sacrifice made for us, the sacrifice that God the Father himself has made for us, for we know his parents paying the heartache it would be to give of our own son, not merely for the sake of others, but for the sake of one's enemies. And yet this is what you have done. We pray, our, our Father, that you would all the more so make us aware the times in which we have continued to sin, which we have failed to, uh, to live up, Uh, to the laws that you have made for us, the times in which we have actively transgressed those laws, the times in which we knew what was the right thing to do and we, we just would not do it. Maybe for lack of courage, just lack of convenience, whatever it may be, but we failed. All the more then we, we look to the cross. And how wondrous it is to know that for all of these sins, these sins that we have committed, the sins that we continue to struggle with because they are besetting sins, to know that, that we do not need to fear tomorrow, even though we, we will yet fail again, that the sacrifice that was made for us once and for all will not, has not, can never fail And so we know that we come to our great God, we come to you as your accepted, adopted children, and as our Father, you hear our prayers. And as as God the Son is even now as our high priest, and he intercedes for us, and the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, how then can we uh, not know and, and understand and not be in awe 
of the ongoing forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we thank you and praise you. Our Father, we pray uh, for this world. Certainly what is on the mind of, of this world is right now is the, uh, this coronavirus. We pray um, for other countries who are suffering from this, who have been dealing with it, and China and South Korea and probably North Korea has now taken a hold of countries in Europe and has now entered into our own boundaries. And we, we pray, for our Father, for those who are living in fear. We pray for those who do not know you and that you would use what is a fearful situation to draw them to the God who is the one refuge and strength for such a time as this. And we pray that you might use us. We certainly pray you would use your churches throughout this land, throughout this world, uh, to be that shining light on a hill, to show forth your mercy and your compassion, to show forth the peace that we have in our great God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Use us. Use this church. Use us as individuals. Use your universal church. It's such a time as this to show forth the, the love of Jesus Christ, to show the reality of the gospel because of the peace that you have given to us. When people see our mercy, when they see our peace, they would be drawn to our Savior. We pray for those who must make great decisions uh, for their various countries, and we pray particularly for our own country, for the president, uh, for the, uh, our congressmen, for our senators, uh, for those in uh, leadership of, of state governments, for all the governors, uh, and for those officials. A great responsibility to make decisions that cause, that cause hardship, they cause a, a measure of suffering. And yet they must bear that uh, responsibility to make these decisions. And we pray for you to give them wisdom, give them discernment. So their actions that they take are for the good of this country. And we pray for our country to come through this ever stronger because of it. We pray for those who have hopes and and uh, have been dashed. There are many young people in college and high school and other schools having to end their education, others who were on teams, and they're, just as they were had their hopes and dreams of what was going to take place, and they have been dashed, and there have been many whose livelihoods have been dependent, even upon sports, as trivia as it might seem, yet it is touched. Many whose lives were dependent upon it. Businesses that are being affected adversely. And all this time we pray for those who, whose livelihood may not be receiving their paychecks, whose businesses may be come close to folding. We pray that your provisions for them and give again the wisdom to our leaders on how to address these concerns. We pray for those who are on the front line of providing medical attention. We pray for those in higher ups in the medical field and with responsibilities, the guidelines that they are causing to, to give. 
We pray for those who are developing the test even now at this time. We pray for our doctors, for our nurses, all else who are providing the frontline medical care. Many of them are no doubt exhausted, and we pray that you would sustain them, uphold them at this time, and we pray for their protection as they place themselves, in a sense, in harm's way. We, we pray for our, uh, our, our sister churches throughout this land. Like ourselves, many are, are not having their public worship. And people are grieved that they cannot come together. And we, we pray for all of our churches, each one making hard decisions on whether or not to worship or together or not, to hold certain meetings or not. It's, it's tough. And we pray for each church to be united, to have harmony in such a time as this, that you would foil the efforts of Satan to bring division in each congregation, but all the more again that your church, your universal church, will show a unity, show a love for one another, a single-minded purpose to glorify you that will impress this world, impress our country, impress our community. Our Father, we just look to you to bring it in uh, to, uh, to this plague. And we call out to you to do that work. You have that power. We can do what we can do on our end of uh, taking the re- responsible measures we need to take but we just look to you and we directly appeal to you to bring this to a conclusion. We pray, our Father, for those who are homebound uh, because of their own physical ailments who have been. We pray for those who may be suffering uh, shortage, shortages uh, in necessaries, those who might be facing shortages in medical care, in medicines. We pray for your provision of them. Guide us, may we, our Father, be proactive in reaching out to our neighbors and in reaching out to our church family to see who is in need, what their needs may be, and to be generous in our sharing. Our Father, we also just come to you as a congregation, and I lift up uh, this congregation before you as we have also received uh, the hard news for us of the resignation of our pastor. We lift him up. We pray especially for his family at this time. We don't know uh, all the details. We don't know the future. And uh, we pray that you would sustain them. We pray that you would, uh, through this, whatever is needing to take place will be in such a way uh, that this family will be blessed. And as as they go forward, uh, all the more that uh, they will go forward knowing that they are in your hands. We thank you for them. We thank you for the ministry uh, that had been carried out over the years by our pastor here, for how we have been taught and ministered to. We thank you for the blessing of this uh, dear family that they have been uh, to this congregation. And so we just uh, commit them into your hands and just pray again for your blessings upon them. And then we pray for ourselves, 
Father, I lift up this congregation. I, I thank you for such a, such a good church family, for those who are mature in their faith, for those who know already that you are with us, for a church that individuals who have known what it is to go through hard times and go through trials and each time to see that you have held them and have been here every step of the way. And I just pray all the more for your Holy Spirit just to touch the hearts of all who are listening, even now. Get them peace. Give them a sense of confidence and hope and blessing because it all comes from you. And we know that you will provide. You will care for your people. We look to you all the more to protect us. We do have an enemy, Satan, the evil one. Pray that you would protect us. Pray that you protect us from division, uh, from any kind of uh, harm that we might um, come our way. But particularly from within, may all the more we be a blessing to one another at this time. I lift up our elders and give you thanks for them for, again, as shepherds of this church. And I have seen and, and watched and seen how um, they have been uh, been shepherding this congregation in ways that the congregation would not even know. All decisions they've been making and discussing and trying to do what is right. Uh, I know, you know, that uh, just in all these different ways and the things, thinking of the coronavirus thing that has happened and we're having to make these hard decisions. And I hear of their own prayers for their people. And I pray that you would continue to sustain them and to give them wisdom. I thank you for our deacons who also, I know, care and love their people and seeking ways to serve them, particularly in such a time as this. And pray that you would sustain them as well and give them the spirit that is needed. And so we commit ourselves to you, our Father. We thank you for the truth of the gospel is not shaken. Your character it remains the same as ever. And we give you all praise and thanksgiving in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this would be the time if you were here, you would know we would um, uh, see the choir standing up and the ushers would be coming up with the offering plate. And uh, so this is going to be a moment I want to give encouragement to the congregation. Um, We don't know how long. Of course, that the suspension of services will be. We hope it will not be long. But um, as you know, our, fi- our expenses will continue. And I'm going to ask you particularly if you would, whatever you would have given today, certainly that you would, uh, you can, that you would mail in your donation. Uh, offices will be open. It, it'll be a light staff, but we will be open and we will be receiving those and counting it up. So if you could place those in the mail, even tomorrow, that would be very helpful. I'd encourage you to do what I have done for years now, in which every I have scheduled through my bank um, checks to be mailed uh, to my church, uh, corresponding during my paycheck, uh, so that I know that it's always going to come and I don't have to remember. Uh, every one of you, your banks will have a system set up for that, and just uh, check in with your bank uh, 
you, you really, you can go on to your bank's website and they'll, they'll walk you through that or you can call them if you don't want to go in. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to now move then uh, to the next scripture reading, which is Matthew 27. I'm going to read verses 15 to 24. And this corresponds uh, to the passage that I'll be preaching from in John in the trial of Jesus. So this is Matthew 27, verses 15 through 24. Let us hear the word of God. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. I would encourage you now at home, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, to open up to John 18, and we will be beginning with uh, the latter part of verse 38, and, I'll, and we'll go through chapter 19, uh, verse 16. Now, let's recall for a little bit what's been going on. We have seen uh, Jesus arrested. We have seen him denied. We have seen him put on trial. And the passage this morning brings us to the conclusion of that trial before Pilate. Now, what is on trial specifically is the question of Jesus' kingship. Is he king? Is he not? And it will be considered from three perspectives. Hatred, cynicism, and fear. These are the perspectives that are presented by different parties in, our, uh, in, the, chap in the passage that I've just read. And so let's take a look at this. I'm going to begin again in verse 38 and read through verse 40. After Pilate had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. 
So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber. Now, John does not mention that, but, you know, as just as I was reading from Matthew, it's Pilate that actually offered the idea of Barabbas as the alternative choice of someone to release. And undoubtedly, he chose the person to whom he thought would have been the most repugnant criminal to present. And John calls Barabbas a robber. That is the mildest of descriptions. Barabbas, as we're told in the other Gospels, was guilty of murder and of insurrection. Should have been an easy choice to make, even for that crowd. And what these verses then are presenting for us is the real contest that's taking place. It's not really between Pilate and Jesus. You know, Jesus is not really contesting anything. It's really between Pilate and the Jews. Now, regarding that term, John can be confusing how he uses that term, the Jews, in his gospel. Sometimes he seems to mean the Jewish people in general. Sometimes it's pretty clear that it's applying only to the Jewish religious leaders. In this scenario, it likely involves both. We know that the leaders are the ones who brought him to Pilate. We know that they're waiting outside. Perhaps a crowd is beginning to gather. And undoubtedly, the leaders actually would have recruited their own crowd. Now, the Jewish leaders are the haters of Jesus. They want him dead. That's the very reason they have delivered him to Pilate. They are the ones who accuse him of wanting to be king. But even so, as we think about this, their hatred lies not so much in him simply claiming such a title. And certainly, they're not concerned out of their loyalty to Caesar. Now, their hatred has to do with all that they know. They understand that Jesus invests in such a title. And we're going to see that further in a moment. So the, so, uh, the Jewish leaders and the crowd that they have gathered are those who, who hate the idea of Jesus as a king. I'm going to look a little bit at Pilate here, and we need some background on him. Pilate has not proven himself to be a wise governor of his territory. We know through Josephus, other writings, that twice he had already stoked hatred against himself by trying to force actions that would have been considered idolatrous and blasphemous. Indeed, even he himself, we know, was guilty of having uh, people bludgeoned to death. Now, he clearly hated the people he governed, and they likewise hated him. So now we have this case where Jesus is foisted upon him, and he's a man who's clearly innocent, certainly of death charges. But the stakes are high for Pilate. Does he carry out Roman justice as he ought to do? He knows this man is innocent. Or does he give way to the mob? The first choice might be the right thing to do, but the latter choice of giving way to the mob that's probably the more expedient for his future relations, at least with the people that he has to govern. So here we're going to see in Pilate the perspective of fear. 
And then there is that cynical view, which is displayed by Pilate's soldiers. We're going to refer to them to them as his captors. We're, we continue now. We're in chapter 19 with verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Now let's look a little bit moment at this, this flogging. As terrible as it was, it was a common means of interrogating a suspect. Some of you, you might remember in the, the book of Acts, getting near the end, when Paul is in the temple court and a mob gathers around him, and they're going to kill him. You know, they're, they're ready to stone him. He's rescued by Roman soldiers who, who take him into the tower that's right there next to the, to the um to the temple courts, and uh, and then what the centurion or the tribune told them to do is to to flog him for this purpose. It's in Acts twenty two twenty four to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So in order to find out why the mob was going to kill him, they first were going to flog him just to to interrogate him. The only thing that saves Paul from the flogging was his truthful claim that he was actually a Roman citizen, and that's what protected him. Now, there's another example of something like this from the Roman official Pliny uh, the Younger. Pliny was a, um, a governor of a sorts, and uh, this is, you know, a few decades later, there are Christians in his territory. He's trying, he is actually writing Caesar to find out how to deal with them, and in that letter, he notes here, I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was. You know, whether these Christians are actually dangerous people or not. So let me read it again. I judged it all the more necessary to find out what the truth was by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses. But I discovered nothing else but depraved, excessive superstition. Aren't you glad we didn't live in a time like that in which you were brought on this on a witness stand and you were questioned by first flogging you or torturing you? So, so the soldiers are carrying out their duty in flogging Jesus. It's this brutal mocking that is their own idea. This is their fun. As far as they're concerned, what could be more ludicrous than this poor peasant claiming to be king of the Jews? They don't necessarily hate Jesus. They certainly do not fear him. They think he's a joke. And as a joke, they despise this, this, this supposed king pretender. All right, let's go back to our text. Beginning now, I'm back in verse 4, and I'm going to read through verse 8. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. 
Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Pilate heard this statement. He was even more afraid. Poor Pilate. He is clearly in over his head. The stakes of his decision are rising higher. He brings out a man who should not have been even able to stand, who is made to appear a fool by the soldiers. And he's thinking probably, surely the crowd, even if they're not filled with pity, at least they should realize that he's no danger. I mean, who in their right mind would think that Jesus could be considered a threat to Rome? or a charismatic leader for the Jews. Surely the crowd out there, they would think that enough is enough. But John, in his gospel, he shows how it's really the leaders, the chief priests and the officers, were really the ones in charge, and that they're instigating this crowd that they have gathered. And their hatred of Jesus and looking at him is only stoked. They are single-minded, They are determined to eliminate him altogether. It seems to be a hatred beyond proper bounds. And yet, it is a hatred founded on true knowledge. They actually do know and understand the danger of Jesus. The soldiers may be cynical. Pilate may be naive, but they are not. They have been observing for years his teachings and his works, and they know where it will all lead to if he is not killed. He will be proclaimed Messiah. They can see that. And they hate him. They hate Jesus. They hate Jesus, for one thing, because how he could, be, he could cause the downfall of their nation. People have already once before, in, in the Gospel of John, tried to crown him their king, If he's let go again, he will then have the added badge of being a martyr, of suffering under the Romans. All the more reason, then, uh, people would want to make him king and and look at him as the leader to fight against Rome. And that kind of result, they they know, will lead to the destruction of the nation. But this hatred, this hatred of theirs is stoked all the more because of what Jesus is consistently taught about them, the leaders, of the undue burdens that they have been placing on the common people, of their hypocrisy, even accusing them of being in opposition to, to God, to Yahweh himself. And then, as far as they're concerned, he has this blasphemous gall to present himself as the son of God. Surely they, they would say, Jesus is a dangerous man. He is an offensive man. And for good reason they hate Jesus. And they're so exasperated that now this stupid Pilate wants to let him go. Pilate really can see no guilt, no harm in him. And so the hate rises in the Jewish leaders. And now the fear rises in Pilate. He fears condemning an innocent man. He fears the crowd as each attempt to free Jesus fails. His comment for the Jewish leaders to crucify Jesus themselves 
shows a man who is rapidly losing control and he's, and he's becoming desperate. Pilate would love to evade that kind of responsibility. But it is the responsibility that only he has a legal right to bear. And now he hears this accusation of Jesus making himself to be the son of God. Pilate is all the more afraid. Of what? What is Pilate afraid of? Of the crowd and the leaders? Yes, possibly. He, he sees now the threat that Jesus could be, but, but why then does he still try to free Jesus? Does he believe Jesus to be the Son of God? That's when it, we're told that he has all the more the fear. Well, Pilate might be unnerved by that thought. I mean, there are stories in those days among the Romans and the Greeks. There are the stories of the gods and the goddesses visiting in human form. You might remember Paul and Silas. When they had gone to a town, they were mistaken for gods. The people were going to offer up sacrifices to them in one town. And then there are those who are known as sons of God. Uh, Hercules was one, as was Achilles. So So undoubtedly, Pilate's initial interaction with Jesus, even before all this, had already unnerved him. And now he's hearing this about being the son of God. Just who is Jesus? Pilate is wondering. Where is he from? Panic is setting in for Pilate. We'll go on in verse 9. And so he entered his headquarters again. And said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate's own authority scares him, though it does not scare Jesus. Jesus knows exactly who has what authority and where that authority comes from. I mean, he seems to be almost comforting Pilate. He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate knows that to condemn Jesus is injustice. But Jesus clarifies who bears the greater responsibility. And note that he gives this injustice its proper name, sin. For sin is an offense against God himself, who is the true judge. And so finally, again, Jesus speaks. Undoubtedly, I want you to note his calmness. While the hatred of his enemies escalates, while the panic of his human judge Pilate grows, and after he has suffered at the cruel beating and taunts of his captors, Jesus stands above them all in dignity. Even so, the heat arises. Beginning in verse 12 through the end is verse 16. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, 
He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Now I have to say, as I, I've read this over and, and over again, and the one thing that continually has puzzled me is why Pilate insisted on presenting Jesus to the Jews as their king. Why does he do that? Behold your king. Shall I crucify your king? Does he believe deep inside that Jesus is king? Is he trying to instill some kind of loyalty, perhaps, in the crowd for their own kind? But what happens is that he easily plays into their hands. We have no king but Caesar. And so as we're looking at this, you'll note that he gives his title of king only after sitting down on the judgment seat. What's happening? Pilate is making his judgment now. He's delivering the sentence. And the issue at hand is Jesus' claim to be king of the Jews. And so to verify his sentence, that's going to be a sentence of guilt, he presents that claim to the people. And he allows them to publicly assert their rejection and to consent with the verdict that Jesus should be crucified. So in the end, he can say, well, you're the ones have made that decision. So this is Pilate's way to do what we read in Matthew. John is giving this to us. It's Pilate's way to wash his hands clean, at least think that he's washing his hands clean of condemning an innocent man. You're the ones who wanted him crucified. It's your fault. And this whole trial business, and certainly the sentence, is a dirty affair, isn't it? An innocent man is condemned because of the unmitigated hatred of hypocritical religious leaders who use their place as, as mediators for God to condemn his son, their Messiah. An innocent man is abused by hard-hearted, cynical soldiers who despise the king as a fool. An innocent man is delivered over for crucifixion by a Roman ruler sworn to justice, who believes the man before him is innocent and who lacks the courage to do what is right. It is a scene that rises and rises in turmoil, in hatred, spite, and fear. And the only man with the authority to act, to put things right, and is the one man most caught up in panic. But then there is the man Jesus. As Pilate presented him, behold the man. And there is the man who's in the center of it all, the object of hatred, the object of spite, the object of the condemning sentence. There is the man dressed as a fool king. Indeed, there is a man who could hardly stand. His back is shredded, his face with blood streaming down. Behold the man. Let us remember, a man Jesus was. He was God the Son who became man, 
who by his incarnation took on our very flesh that he might one day stand before wicked men, be rejected by them, and be condemned by them in hatred through injustice. That's why he took on that flesh. Behold the man, and behold the king. Behold your king. Behold your king who, as he once said, has the authority to lay down his life an authority to take it up again, back in John 10, 18. An authority that he noted was given him by his father. This is how Jesus could speak to Pilate about authority. He personally knew where authority comes from. And is is this not how he could stand even now among his enemies? He knew that he did not stand in the hands of the religious leaders or his captors or Pilate. They, in their hatred, spite, and panic, were but carrying out the purpose for which he came. Behold, the Lamb, your Lamb, who takes away the sins of the world, who takes away your sins. Now, when we're reading the passage, did you pick up that message that John slips in? It's in verse 14. It reads this way, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. This is the third time in the trial scene that John slips in that reminder of the Passover. Again, he puts it into our image that at that very moment, thousands of lambs are being slaughtered for the Passover meal that very evening at the temple. And John then is really what he's conveying is what he had quoted John the Baptist is saying back in John 1:29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So with this in mind, consider the futility of his enemies. They and their hatred, they, they are determined to wipe out his existence. Yet in that hatred, they, they make sure that he will carry out his mission to make sacrifice for the sins of their people. Their hatred, furthermore, supplies the contrast to the love of Jesus that was moving him to the cross, even for the sake of his enemies. And the soldiers, in their spite, they they intended to make a mockery of his pretensions. And yet their very mockery displays his dignity and inadvertently supplies the contrast to the very real robe and crown of glory that he would wear. And Pilate, in his own panic and and ineptness, provides that contrast to the true king bearing dignity and authority to lay down his life that he may take it up again. Remember this. Remember this when turmoil arises around you, when you when you begin to feel the panic, when you despair of hope, behold your king. This is what distinguishes us from the rest of the world. We do not escape the same troubles. It is what we know that marks us out. I want to close with the last words that were given by my mentor, James Montgomery Boyce, when he was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church, is the last words that he gave to his congregation just a few weeks before his death by terminal 
by, by cancer. He'd gone up there before the service, and this is what he said to them. A number of you have asked what you can do for me in my illness. You can do what you're doing, which is to pray. For what should you pray? Should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression is that the God who's able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is also able to keep one from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, they're rare by definition. A miracle has to be an unusual thing. I think it's far more profitable to pray for wisdom for the doctors and then also for the effectiveness of the treatment. Above all, I would say pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history, and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. Jesus said, don't you think I could call down from my father ten legions of angels for my defense? But he didn't do that. And that's where God is most glorified. If I were to reflect on what goes on theologically here, there are two things I would stress. One is the sovereignty of God. That's not novel. I've always talked about the sovereignty of God. God is in charge. When things like this come into our lives, they're not accidental. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and something bad slipped by. God does everything according to his will. But what I've been impressed with mostly is something in addition to that. It's possible, isn't it, to conceive of God as sovereign and yet indifferent? God's in charge, but he doesn't care. But it's not that. God is not only the one who is in charge. God is also good. Everything he does is good. And what Romans 12, 1 to 2 says is that we have the opportunity by the renewal of our minds, that is how we think about these things, actually to prove what God's will is. And then it says his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Is that will good, pleasing, and perfect to God? Yes, of course. But the point of it is that it's good, pleasing, and perfect to us. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you change it, you'd make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. So that's the way we want to accept it and move forward. Move forward. It's the word I would have to my congregation. Move forward. L-O-P-C. Knowing that your King, Jesus Christ, leads the way through the turmoil, through the panic, to our ultimate glory. We give you praise, our great God, that you are the sovereign God, that you are in control. We give you so much thanks that you are a God who is also good. And everything that happens to us and around us is for that good. And may we accept that, may we understand that, and may we move forward together. 
giving all glory to our great God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And now receive the, the blessing of the Lord. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.